This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Forget the frustration of picking commerce platforms when you switch your business to Shopify, the global commerce platform that supercharges your selling wherever you sell. With Shopify, you'll harness the same intuitive features, trusted apps, and powerful analytics used by the world's leading brands. Sign up today for your $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash tech, all lowercase. That's shopify.com slash tech. This episode is brought to you by ABC. Station 19 is back for its final and hottest season yet. Andy finally becomes captain, and she's going to give it her all to be the best leader this station has ever seen. Will she succeed? Get ready for fiery new romances and high adrenaline rescues. Watch the Station 19 season premiere tonight at a new time, 10, 9 central on ABC and stream on Hulu. and welcome to The Bunker. I'm Marie LeConte. When we talk about the far right, be that online or in the streets, we often think of angry young or not-so-young men. Does this mean we're missing part of the picture? Academic Dr Evian Leidick, a postdoctoral fellow at Tilburg University, thinks so. In her new book, The Woman of the Far Right, Social Media Influences and Online Radicalisation, she looks at the role women play in spreading extremism on the internet. Going beyond the stereotype of the typical white male supremacist, she uncovers how young, attractive women are playing key roles as propagandists, organisers, fundraisers and entrepreneurs. She joins us on The Bunker today. Hi, Evian. Hi, thanks for having me. Thanks for coming on. So you've written a book focusing essentially on gender, the far right and the internet. Which of these interests came to you first? What was your way into this? Well, I had already been studying the far right for several years, although throughout that course of time, I was also starting to focus on the far right online, um, looking at various aspects of online radicalization and extremism. And then starting in 2019 is when I became interested in looking at these female YouTubers. And this was at the time of when the so-called alt-right was dwindling. So this was sort of at the end of that movement. And I had seen that there was such little attention being paid to the woman within the far right, in particular, these sort of alt-right YouTubers. Mm. So then I said immediately, you know, there needs to be more to unpack, like, what is their role within this space? And from my knowledge, it had been like 20 years since there'd actually been like an academic book written about women in the far right. So I said, there needs to be an update for today. Mm. And I'm quite curious, did the pandemic play any role on that? Because I feel like when we talk about radicalization, quite often, especially over the past few years, it's it's often a case of, you know, X and Y and Z had either too much time, you know, on their hands and ended up just being online all the time and kind of falling down rabbit holes. Or yeah, or people were like, well, they're used to kind of do fascism as a sign. But then they didn't have anything to do, you know, during the pandemic. So that just really focused on the fascism. So like, did that happen a bit as well with the kind of uh, the movement you're talking about? Yeah, absolutely. I mean, when these women in particular, they sort of started their political activism around like 2017, 2016, like during the US election and, and Trump's presidency. But I wrote the bulk of this book during the pandemic. So that's actually when I started to see like shifts in the movement and definitely as people and particularly younger people were spending time online, feeling quite isolated and lonely. I started to see how these influencers were sort of picking up on Mm. those like life situations and being able to really tap into people's senses of vulnerability and, and personal grievance. Cool. And so, like, could you describe a few of these women? Like, what do they do? What do they talk about? What do they look like? Like, what? Give us, yeah, give us a sense, I guess, of you know the woman you've been writing about. 
So many of them, as I mentioned, sort of started their political activism on YouTube. So they were doing a lot of like political commentary or like hot takes on current events. Then I started to notice that they were like posting increasingly on Instagram, actually during the pandemic. And the type of content that they were posting on Instagram was about lifestyle. So it was about things like health and wellness, or many of them became mothers for the first time. So they're talking about like their first time with pregnancy and, and delivering. Then they were also talking about just like beauty and cooking, gardening with their children. And so like that really sparked my interest because when we think about the far right, we don't often think about these certain aspects that revolve mm. around lifestyle and around personal branding in particular, mm. that these influencers are so attuned to capturing for their audiences. Mm. And I guess like, this is a slightly obvious question, but what do these women want? Because I think that, you know, from the outside, at least, it seems that a lot of the kind of far right men really, really hate women, you know, and the society they want to create would not be a fun one for us. So what do kind of far right, alt right, however you want to call them women, like, well, what do they want? What's their kind of, what are they trying to achieve, I suppose? So my argument within the book is that rather than focusing on short-term gains at the ballot box, these women are really focused on trying to change cultural and social norms. So they mm. believe that mainstream society is controlled by feminists who are intent on forcing women and men into quote-unquote unnatural gender roles. Mm. Um, so their vision for a far a utopia in a way would be the division of gender roles where the woman is the homemaker and the husband, uh, you know, is the primary breadwinner for the family, goes out to work in public. And as the homemaker, you know, the wife and the mother has full domain over the private sphere uh, mm. and around all domestic issues. But then they absolutely believe that in this type of society, like the husband is the one who is like who casts a vote for the household, for example. So they don't actually believe uh, that women should have the right to vote, oh my for God. instance. Yeah. Um, <laughs> that's so depressing. Oh, my God. <laughs> um, and so, I mean, you've you mentioned here and you mentioned in the book as well that these women are not really involved in kind of like electoral politics and the more the more mainstream bit, I suppose, of the far right. And they kind of prefer doing the longer term stuff and kind of being on the outskirts. So why do you think that is? Because actually, you know, as far as I can tell, you know, all the way from Europe, quite a few Republican politicians would be quite happy with the kind of woman staying at home stuff in anti-abortion, et cetera, et cetera. So why not, why not try to kind of just go within main, that more mainstream politics and why decide to stay on YouTube, et cetera, do you think? Well, I think it depends on the influencer you're looking at because, mm. for example, a couple of the women that I've profiled are a bit more involved in like mainstream conservative politics within the U.S., like mm. particularly around like youth organizations like Turning Point USA, for example. Mm. Although I think the thing that sort of separates them in terms of that boundary is that these women that I've studied are a lot more extreme in terms of like their viewpoints as well as their rhetoric. And so... There is still, I mean, if we can even imagine today, you know, there is still sort of this taboo where this sort of this curtain of what is considered legitimate or not. And so with these women, when they overtly say that women should not have the right to vote anymore, I think that mm. definitely becomes a signal in terms of whether or not they could actually be included in sort of the mainstream mm. space. Cool. And I feel like because I've been talking about the movement a bit, but I'm now slightly questioning myself. So do they exist as part of the same movement as the kind of alt-right boys, etc.? Do you think they're kind of doing their own separate things? Like what, how do these two work? Because I'm guessing, you know, from the general vibe they give off, like both men and women, they're probably not all working together, you know, as equals, men and women. So yeah, how do they kind of interact with the more fascist, I suppose, men? 
they definitely have supporters from those spaces, but not mm. always. I mean, they yeah. uh, definitely receive a lot of misogynistic backlash from <gasps> from commentators. You yeah. uh, <laughs> so I mean, it'll be during a live stream. They'll get these comments like, "What are you doing, uh, putting your face out there? Just go back barefoot in the kitchen, right?" So it's oh. not. I will not gloss over and say that they are universally accepted by yeah. all the men within the movement. That said, that they still very much promote misogyny and in patriarchal views. Mm. But I think the women that I've profiled are ones that are very well educated, very well articulate. They've kind of been platformed up as the, you know, attractive, visible faces of the movement. And so my primary arguments with this research is that these women are normalizing and legitimizing a lot more extreme far-right ideas to mainstream audiences. Because the mm. women I've studied, they're on YouTube, they're on Instagram, they're not on these like fringe platforms. Mm. I mean, they're very much still out in the open. Mm. And isn't there something about aesthetics as well? Because I've seen it a bit on Instagram, like that they use the same look of, you know, you'll normally see the kind of Instagram pastel infographic kind of yeah. thing, which is normally just like, you know, remember to eat well and, you know, mm. like have your beauty sleep, whatever. But then like, they kind of use that and then distort it, I suppose, and then kind of use that to spread their message. But so who are they trying to target? Because I, and I, I, I'm more on Twitter than Instagram, I'm happy to admit. And usually, you know, it does seem to be men who kind of want that content or, you know, the kind of like, let's be honest, very sexualized picture of the stay-at-home mom who happens mm-hmm. to have the body of a kind of, you know, like goddess and the perfect hair and makeup, yeah. etc., carrying somehow seven children at the same time. You know, mm-hmm. And that's clearly like kind of a male fantasy. So how, but yeah, who are they trying to target? Is that's, it more men or women? Or that's such how? a great question because when I first started off doing this research, I had assumed that these far-right women would be recruiting and radicalizing other women into mm. the far-right. But I found that it really depended on the platform. So on YouTube, they actually tended to have a lot more male viewers. Mm. And I think one of them had even said that she looked at her YouTube analytics the other day and she had 85% of her viewers were male, which is really astounding in terms of like the portion of of viewers. And they specifically will tailor content towards their male viewers. Well, they'll talk about things like the crisis of masculinity in societies because mainstream society is controlled by feminists, etc. So they're very attuned to creating those types of narratives for their male followers. But actually it was on Instagram where I started to see they had a lot more female viewers Mm. and followers. And I think that's because the type of content they post is about lifestyle. It's about, you know, mommy blogging or cooking dinner or gardening Mm. with their kids and these types of aspirational lifestyle aesthetics that they tend to embody. And, And this kind of ranges everything from sort of like the 1950s suburban housewife aesthetic all the way to like the cottagecore bohemian like mm. homesteading off the grid living kind of aesthetic there are so many of those accounts and I feel like I, I see them and it's really like cannot emphasize the extent to which that is not what I want from my social media <laughs> and yet it does appear on Instagram discover quite often I'm like okay you make your own butter like well well done like what do you want me to say but like, so why do you think those accounts are very popular online does it strike a chord a bit I, I think you know it's not entirely controversial to say that you know and I don't have kids myself but it does suck, I think, at the moment in the society we have to have kind of like two working parents and several kids and trying to run around, etc. For reasons, I think, that, to be clear, have nothing to do with feminism having gone too far. Is it kind of like their way in the fact that, you know, current parenthood or motherhood is not ideal and they can sort of go, but look, look, you could wear pretty dresses or like, how, how do they? Yeah. Yeah, it's very much exploiting this type of fantasy self that they're trying to role model for their followers because they always say, like, come here if you want to see wholesome content or like content around families. And it's definitely this type of retreat or escapism that I think their audiences are drawn to. Now, 
like whether or not this is actually the day-to-day lived reality of these women, it's not very clear. But at the end of the day, like it is a social media performance that Mm. they are showcasing for their audiences. And I think that it's so appealing, particularly because I was writing about my own personal experiences doing this research in the book, you know, as Mm. as somebody who could have very easily grown up with these women or like gone to school with them or university with them. And they're so attuned to using these social media platforms in ways that their audiences already understand and already interact with on them, Mm. right? So like they're using certain features of like Instagram stories that are so familiar to, you know, a demographic like us. Mm. And so my core argument with the book is that these women are particularly well-equipped in terms of being relatable, accessible, authentic, and responsive to their audiences. Hmm. And that can be quite dangerous because that's when we start to see how things like radicalization, recruitment, are being seeped into the type of content that they're posting. Shipping can make or break a sale, so optimize how you ship your orders with ShipStation. They make it easy to automate and manage orders no matter how big your business grows. And they might even be able to help reduce shipping and warehouse costs. So optimize and keep up your momentum for growth with ShipStation. Sign up for your free 60-day trial now at ShipStation.com and use the code P-O-D. That's ShipStation.com with the code P-O-D. Dreaming of a better sleep? Tossing and turning is not your destiny. And Ollie is here to help. Ollie invites you to sink into sweet, sweet slumber to improve your mental and physical health and overall wellness. More than just melatonin, Ollie's ingredients help you unwind your mind for a delightfully dreamy drift off. Sleep is on the way at Ollie.com. That's O L L Y.com. This episode is brought to you by Kia's first three-row all-electric SUV, the Kia EV9. With available all-wheel drive and seating for up to seven adults. With zero to 60 speed that thrills you one minute. And available lounge seats that unwind you the next. Visit kia.com slash EV9 to learn more. Ask your Kia dealer for availability. No system, no matter how advanced, can compensate for all driver error and or driving conditions. Always drive safely. And so looking at the women themselves, like what, because uh, obviously you, you look in the book at, you know, several specific women, what were their kind of ideological journeys like? Because, you know, before radicalizing others, they had to get radicalized themselves. And so how, like, could you talk us through maybe, you know, how these women came to be who they are now? So these women are very open about sort of their radicalization journeys. Hmm. So like one of the first few videos that they created on their YouTube channels is when they describe their experiences in being radicalized and Hmm. they sort of go into their life histories and their life backgrounds. So they like, and what was interesting to me across all of these women was how similar they were. Hmm. So many of them described growing up in middle-class households, middle-class neighborhoods, like going to university after university, sort of entering, you know, corporate jobs and sort of climbing that ladder, Mm. living in urban areas and socializing with friends and colleagues. So like really, you know, normal Mm. life stages. But then there's a moment in time in which all of these far-right women influencers describe feeling deeply depressed and unhappy with their life situation. Mm. And then they attribute this to feminism because they say that feminism Mm. controls and demands women to 
unnaturally work in the public sphere. And so they argue that traditionalism is the antidote to feminism. That is quite a fun. It's, it's a proper Alice in Wonderland moment, isn't it? it like, is. That, that, that is kind of where you yeah, end up in feminism or anti-feminism, like usually of just, yeah, or yes, the other option would be to go, hang on a minute, I'm expected to do all of yeah. this and I'm still getting paid less and I'm still etc. like, you know, to the barricades, comrades. Um, so, yeah, I feel like it's either that or going, well... Or how about the 1940s? Is it working? I, I'm guessing it is, because again, we probably wouldn't be here today talking about it otherwise. But, you know, are they kind of convincing people? Are they very popular? Like, is it working as a movement? Arguably, yes. I mean, Ooh. it's always hard to measure sort of the direct impact that these women have. But I would say that a lot of the ideas, the more extreme ideas that they were promoting back in like 2019, 2018, are now very mainstream. I mean, for example, like conversations about anti-feminism have become so popular hmm. now um, even, even in britain even Yay. in britain thanks, guy. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, thanks guys um also a lot of conspiracy theories that popped up during the pandemic that they were sharing uh i mean a lot of those that particularly around like the anti-vax and like its hmm. effects on things like menopause or fertility or menstruation hmm. i mean those types of conspiracy theories that have now gained hold in terms of people's sort of everyday skepticism that they have about vaccines. Mm. So, you know, it's really hard to measure a direct impact, but they've definitely helped to, you know, bridge that overturn window in terms of what is acceptable discourse. What's the state of play like today? So you finished writing the book last year. Has anything changed since then? Oh, there's always something new on the far right scene, some oh, new yay! trend or some yay! new conspiracy. And I was almost 99% sure I had included like, you know, particular new mm. conspiracies in the book. And then I looked back and I, and I realized I hadn't at all. <laughs> <laughs> and that's the problem of doing work like this is because mm. it's a constantly evolving, you know, in a very dynamic landscape. Mm. But I think one thing that I've been keeping my eye on is in particular with like with Gen Z and with younger mm. generations is the rise of the trad wife movement yeah. and how that is not so overtly political compared to the woman that I had previously studied. Mm. And it's very subtle and much more insidious. And there's a certain assumption around the type of trad lifestyle that they are showcasing for their audiences. And they don't talk about politics mm. overtly. And I think in many ways that is a much more insidious way of still modeling for their audiences, you know, certain political and ideological views, but not being so open about it. I worry. And again, I I don't know if that's just me now being in my 30s, but there's stuff I see online where I'm like, oh, no, like this is almost certainly harmless. But also, I, I don't like the kind of slippery slope thing there. So what was it, you know, the kind of like girl jobs and the idea of like, being like oh, I'm just going to have a husband who's quite rich and then I'm going to have a silly little job that I do from nine to five just to keep myself busy because it's nice being busy, but ultimately I don't pay for anything, which is kind of like th th this meme. I feel like that went around a few months ago and I was like, oh, no, 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 no. So, so yeah, no, I, I get that. I think stuff that is not inherently entirely political, definitely not party political, et cetera, but the connotations are kind mm -hmm. of unpleasant. But so I would say that how, like, what, what would be the warning signs, do you think, that someone is perhaps, again, going down the rabbit hole and maybe going from following, you know, like pretty women on Instagram who make their own butter to going, oh, God, you know, you've got to secure the future of white children. Like, you know, when do you start raising the alarm? Yeah, I mean, 
I would say even for somebody like myself, who for mm. years I've studied radicalization, even I have difficulty sometimes in sort of pinpointing what becomes like the slippery slope. Mm. Because recently a friend had sent to me a video asking, is this woman far right? And I had to look at the video a couple of times until I realized, oh, she's using certain coded language here mm. that actually indicates her far-right views, but it's not very obvious. And I'd say there's become an, an increased number of, of accounts within this space who are sort of following within that trend. But in terms of, I think, perhaps like at, intervening at an early stage in that sort of approach that we can take, you know, something that I really picked up on with these women telling about their own radicalization stories was how very early on they lost a lot of their social support networks. So Ooh. losing a lot of family and friends. Mm. Now they justify that by saying, well, I'm just finding my most authentic self or my most confident mm. self. And so that those narratives of authenticity obviously mask what is a very hateful ideology and movement. But that was such a pivotal moment in time in which I think that Yes, like having that really early intervention when somebody is saying, like, I'm starting to think about the world in this way and, and you know, not recognizing the harms that it's actually impacting upon others. Just that very early stage of intervention is, is I think, quite vital. Now, what actually comes to, like, the content online, like, I think that's a different story in yeah. terms of what actually gets amplified from the algorithms. And then, mm. you know, like, I think once you look at, you know, one piece of content, you can very easily go down the rabbit hole when it comes to other suggested recommendations. Mm. But actually, that's, thank you very much for that segue, because I was going to um, talk about the platforms a bit. Like, how much do you think social media platforms are to blame for the kind of rise of that movement? Like, is it a case of, you know, if you're just quite a pretty thin white woman, then the algorithm will quite often be like, yes, please, please, you know, we'll kind of put your video everywhere. So yes, platforms have had a stake in terms of the algorithmic amplification of this content. But on the other hand, these women are just participating in what has become very mainstream gender norms. Like they know that, mm. you know, pretty attractive young women on platforms monetizes, it, it generates visibility, and they're playing into that and mm. they're using that to their advantage along with spreading then their problematic ideas, right? So I think it's it's both in terms of like, yes, yeah, social media companies do have a responsibility here. But what's really difficult in terms of like the ongoing conversations that I've been having with tech companies is that they say, but it doesn't violate our platform. You know, they're not inciting violence or saying violent yeah. things. So we can't technically take action huh. on it. Yeah. And so, but it definitely traverses that borderline in terms of stuff that could be violative or could cause harms. And so like, when it comes then to actually taking action, yes, we can point to some specific examples of where these women have actually influenced terrorist attacks yeah. or apologized for terrorist attacks. But then on the other hand, I tell platforms, like, why don't you start to just rethink what is actually violative on your platform? Because what these mm -hmm. women promote does fall under hate speech yeah. on the platforms. Or I, I actually didn't see any action being taken on these women until during the pandemic when they started getting flagged for spreading scientific disinformation about COVID. Hmm. And it was only then, after years of having spread hate speech on these platforms, all of a sudden they yeah, were that getting was the one, flagged yeah. for, for spreading disinformation. Al Capone on tax evasion. <laughs> <laughs> and I hmm. point out to companies, you know, it's, it is disinformation, but hmm. it's also disinformation laced with hate speech. You know, it's yeah. not simply just anti-vax. It's anti-vax because these women also believe in the great replacement and that the vaccine is a form oh. of biopolitical control. So, so, I mean, it's an ongoing conversation that I myself am having with tech companies. Companies, but yeah, I absolutely believe that there should be a responsibility in terms of the fact that these women use these platforms for amplification and for exposure. 
Mm. Well, that was really interesting, but also quite depressing. Uh, thank you so much, Vivian. <laughs> Thanks for having me. Listeners, if you enjoyed this podcast, you can back us on Patreon so we can keep making them. There's a link in the show notes or just search Bunker Patreon Podcast. For as little as £3 a month, you'll get access to episodes early and without adverts, as well as exclusive merchandise offers. I'm Marie LeConte, and you were listening to The Bunker. Good news, your favourite history nerds are back. Yes, we at We Are History have been trawling the history shelves of our local bookshops. Well, I have, John. You mostly went round finding your books and moving them to the front of the displays. If I can find them, it's a bonus. We are ready to tell you all about what we've learned, from the revolting French to some revolting women. Via some Brits abroad and a foul-mouthed Irishman. So, download We Are History. Our laughable attempt at a silly history podcast. With me, John O'Farrell and me, Angela Barnes wherever you get your podcasts The Bunker Daily was written and presented by Marie Leconte The producer was Eliza Davis-Beard and the audio producer was me, Jade Bailey. The managing editor is Jacob Jarvis and the group editor is Andrew Harrison. With music by Kenny Dickinson and artwork by James Parrott, The Bunker is a Podmasters production.